0: But about how, what, and why we believe as we do, a time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, you're invited to join our chat room by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Conversations already started there. It adds an extra dimension to the show, and whenever there are earls or things of that nature mentioned on the show, they're listed in the chat room. My partner Ravinder is here in the studio, and she's monitoring the chat room now. So, Rav, say hello to everyone, and add your thoughts of wisdom today.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Thoughts of wisdom. Actually, I'm thinking more very practical stuff today. You were just talking about the uh, chat room, and if you are... Hearing this show uh, through the podcast or when it reairs on one of the other networks, if you go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, just search for that particular show in the archives and you will pull up the old uh, information in the chat room. So once again, if we've posted any important information in there, any urals, um, any other details, you will be able to read it afterwards.
0: All right. In this week's Spotlight... I'd like to discuss the idea of qualifications. This is, this is a bit of a pet peeve for me, and I, you know, I'll just be clean and upfront with you in saying so. What qualifies someone to speak as an expert on anything? Think about that for a minute. I mean, <clears throat> is a physicist qualified to address medicine? And if so, why and from what perspective? Should we hold experts to their field of training? And then, what about those experts trained in a field, but considered to be, well, just a little far out by all the other experts in their field? Universities today have many disciplines to choose between. Arguably, obtaining a a degree in a given discipline entitles a person to a certain level of expertise within that discipline. A graduate degree provides another level of expertise and so forth. On up a ladder we go. Now the reason I ask this question is because I see more and more doctors of something or experts on something so-called scientists speaking as experts on matters completely foreign to the discipline in which they earned their degree. For example, what does a person with a bachelor's degree in computer science know about biology or psychology? And yet, one such expert, and I say that with quotation marks, is busy informing the masses about how epigenetics works. Indeed, as with the book, The Secret, all you have to do to change your manifest DNA is think positively and forgive. I'm sorry, folks. Epigenetics is just a little more complicated than that. This is but one example of many where the information from a specialized discipline is distorted. I remember interviewing a reverend doctor, who proceeded to unpack the wave-particle duality, the famous double-slit experiment, and insists that it therefore proved consciousness was behind all creation in the universe. This is not an idea generally embraced by scientists. Indeed, not long after this first interview, I spoke with a popular physicist in the New Age circles, one often quoted by his devotees and once he had elaborated his ideas of how consciousness was the creative force behind everything, he admitted that this was his opinion, his take, not one most scientists agree with. In other words, there exists no substantiation for his assertions. Now whether or not you like this idea, And I I admit, also, that I kind of do like that idea. The relevant point that I'm attempting to make is this. It's okay to have an opinion. But when you postulate that opinion or flatly insist on your interpretations as being factual, proven by hard science, you've made a mental error. Now, I don't want to take issue with opinions when expressed as nothing more than that. We all are entitled to opinions. That said, an opinion is not a fact. It is only a personal interpretation of the information available to you. Unfortunately, these people who would offer information as fact tend to corrupt the available information from which folks use to form their opinions. And thus ideas that are false to fact are perpetuated as though they were gospel. I would urge you to pay closer attention to the detail and investigate the claims of others for yourself. Remember, research has shown that when you're in the presence of an authority the areas in the brain responsible for discrimination can simply shut down. As such, My second recommendation, just because it's a doctor, doesn't necessarily mean they have it right. It's a good idea to check on them as well. Hold your opinions, that's marvelous. If you embrace them and they have pragmatic value to you, great. But don't try and put them out there as though this is hard evidence and scientific fact. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, I agree with everything you were saying there, including that that is one of your pet peeves. Um, You know, I think the whole area is really complicated. Um, You do have um, the experts, the authority figure, all of that stuff, you know, certainly comes into play. But one of the examples you gave was, Um, an expert who was talking about his field, but he was talking about his opinion and an opinion that was not held by his peers. Um, And I totally understand what you're saying. I totally agree with you. I don't have any issues with that. What I'm thinking about, though, is the originality as well. So I think trying to think for yourself, trying to put aside the fact that it is an authority figure and it's not just a doctor, that has that it can be an author a teacher a lecturer anyone who appears to have authority their opinions are going to hold more sway over you Um, if you can find a way to put that to one side you know just that feeling and think through the information Um, I've certainly heard experts talking um, on stage and they use lots of jargon of their field and it makes it sound so impressive it sounds really cool and it's so easy just to say, oh, wow, yeah, that's right. But stop and think about it. The fact is, every one of the people listening today is bright enough to think through the information that's being presented. Be aware of your own preferences. Yeah, that sounds good. I would. I wish that were true. But understand, I wish that were true doesn't necessarily make it so. So think. That's all I can say is think for yourself. Think it all through.
0: Amen to that. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in, in making this show successful. Our last live show featured Professor Paul Gilbert, and we discussed his work and book, Mindful Compassion. Beth wrote, compassion, sensitivity to others' well-being, and a determination to do something about it. That sums it all up well. Richard wrote, I wonder why this guy can't be, I'm I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I wonder why this can't be taught in school. They are not teaching mindfulness. This would be a small step in the right way. Moving on, Evelyn wrote, I have purchased a number of your subliminal recordings in the past, and I play them every day. I also tune into your Provocative Enlightenment podcast regularly. I love your show and consider it to be the best podcast in the world. You and your guests are such intelligent people, giving us all much food for thought. Bless you all. Well, thank you very much, Evelyn. I don't know about me, but I do know we bring some really bright guests to this show. David wrote, good day from down under. Dr. Taylor, I use your inner talk nonviolence recording daily. I am a different man, more settled. Thank you. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show. Before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do, with a favorite guest of mine, Professor John Bark. Our guest has been with us before, but for those of you who may have missed that show, let me tell you a little about him. John A. Bard is a social psychologist currently working at Yale University, where he has formed the Automaticity and Cognition, Motivation and Evaluation Laboratory, ACME for short, ACME. He is the James Roland Engel Professor of Psychology and Professor of Management at Yale University. Professor Barge is particularly famous for his demonstrations of priming affecting action. And if you caught last show, where we just barely got into this subject, we'll get a lot deeper today. You know how important it is to understand how easily people can manipulate you without your conscious awareness. This is a must-read book, in my opinion. I think everyone out there would do well to get this book and to give it to everybody they know for Christmas. It's to all of our interest to indeed be aware of the many tools that are often used to persuade us either to take up with a platform, follow a politician, buy a product, or win our hearts and minds. Okay, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor John Barge.
2: Thank you, Eldon, for that introduction. And yes, everyone go buy my book and give it to everybody for Christmas. That's to, from your, uh, your lips to God's ears, man. That's a very nice thing to do. I, I always enjoy being on the show, and I really enjoyed your opening uh, 10 minutes. Uh, I wrote a whole page of notes and ideas. It's it's such an important topic and issue and just brought up a lot of things uh, for me as soon as uh, you started talking about it.
0: Oh, well, thank you, Professor. So you don't think I got anything wrong on that one, huh?
2: I, I no, Well, it's an issue. It's it's. Uh, I don't know about right or wrong, but uh, this whole thing with, with the Internet and with uh, globalization just bringing so many more voices to our attention on all these different topics, we don't often – none of us are an expert in everything, and so we have to rely – on people who know their fields or know more, and take their word for it. We we trust our doctors, we trust our leaders, we trust uh, you know our experts, and uh, we we have no choice but to do that. We just can't possibly all be experts in every single topic ourselves. So there's this matter of trust, and uh, you know you, you rely on people um, who are very you know who are knighted almost uh, to be brilliant, like Nobel Prize winners, and when they say things. You you trust that they know what they're talking about because uh, they've been vetted and and, uh, anointed as being uh, very, very smart and expert. And when they go out of their field and start being smart in other areas besides what their base is or knowledge is, then, you know, things I can. I've written down three or four times in history where these kinds of things happened with uh, Linus Pauling with the vitamin C and Francis Crick, uh, the neuroscientist or the DNA uh, discoverer when he started writing books about consciousness and there's all these cases where people go outside their field and, and uh, but then we trust them, you know, and it's, it's, it's a funny thing. You know, these experts have a power, have a great, great power to influence us, but they also, it's like that beer ad. They also have a great responsibility, uh, to, uh, use that power, um, you know, a little more carefully.
0: And when they fail to do so, they really <clears throat> muddy the waters. That's, you know, And so we come away following them because, well, they were a Nobel Prize winner. And we pay little attention to the fact that, and and the man's name slips my mind right now, but off the top of my head, you know, it was a Nobel Prize that was given for frontal lobotomies.
2: Oh, yeah. And a few years
0: later, you know, he, he is not just defamed and disgraced and abandoned by all those folks that voted for him for that Nobel Prize, but, you know... He still goes down as a list of Nobel laureates. And so you know, just like, because it, he's a Nobel laureate doesn't even mean that he's got it
2: right. Yeah, Eldon, I, I, I hesitated to bring that one up. I just thought it's it's so extreme. I didn't want to make it so bad. But that was 1949, and I also forget the person's name. Um, but it was horrible. I, I, there's a book out there uh, called My, My Lobotomy, believe it or not, by a a guy who, who when he was a kid, had a horrible parents who basically made him get a lobotomy because he didn't obey them. And and the way it was done is horrible. Uh, it, it, was, it was a common, it was almost a common procedure back then because of this Nobel laureate who said, this is how you solve these problems. And, and his brain was destroyed, he somehow survived, he had a life, he actually wrote a book about it, which is chilling because it's so sad Uh, you know, he's a little boy and, uh, at the power of medicine, the power of his parents and power of doctors back then. But it just goes to show, you know, uh, what we know now, we look back 50 years and we laugh at things like that. Like they're so backwards, but I was around 50 years ago and, and you know, back then people didn't think it was backwards. And I always am humble about this because I think whatever I think is true right now to the best of my ability. I know 50 years from now, with all the new discoveries and knowledge and thinking about these topics, someone's going to look back and say, ah, ha, ha, you know, that silly person back in 2018 said this and this and this. Just like we look back at this guy, you know, in 1950 and and what a, you know, what an idiot. But he won a Nobel Prize. And, you know, the really scary thing about that story is he never did any research on human beings. He did some some uh, tests uh, of this lobotomy procedure on rats. Yeah. He was a, a a doctor in Portugal. And on the basis of just those those uh, studies with rats, then it was made medical practice on on human beings. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, that story is just unbelievable. But it's a great example of what you were saying.
0: Yes, sir. OK, Professor, as you know, we like to know three things on this show. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And of course, how do we use it? So for the benefit of those who might have missed your last appearance on this show, tell us, what is the purpose of your book?
2: The purpose of my book is to put together what what basically cognitive science has learned in the last 30 or 40 years, which is the first time we've had this kind of uh, systematic scientific investigation of the mind. Uh, before that, it was a field run by behaviorists with rat and pigeon research, right, and it was theories, which often were very interesting and and, and, uh, valuable theories, Freud and so forth, but not a systematic uh, study of the average human being. And that's what these studies are. They were studies done with the average person, with control conditions, with random assignments of different, uh, of different conditions, to see what exactly goes on in a person's mind that they did not intend, that they weren't aware of. Uh, and at the, at the beginning and when people started this, we just assumed everything a person did they were aware of and they intended. And so the little baby steps turned into bigger steps and then jumps and leaps because it turned out a lot of what goes on in our mind is procedures and processes and influences from the outside world and unconscious influences from within that are not intended and we're not aware of. And that's the surprising story that really none of us back in the 70s and 80s saw coming. We we didn't know that. We didn't assume it. But now that's the story the book tells.
0: Okay, now, I, I'm going to divert a little bit. First of all, the last time you were here, you, you, I, you need to know that our audience absolutely loved your appearance based on you know all the letters and, and comments in the chat room, etc. And I also heard from several who were just absolutely fascinated by your book. Uh, thank me indeed for recommending it. But one of the comments that we received suggested that you have essentially argued in the past that Democratic ideas are good while Republican ideas are bad. I'm sure you're aware of this. Uh, So is this true, and did you intend to be political?
2: (laughs) No, no. I've been taken that way, and uh, thank you for giving me the chance to clear this up, because I'm actually apolitical. I come from a very red uh, part of the country, actually, from um, southern Illinois and southern Indiana is where my wife is from, and our families are from there. Uh, and I actually live in a, an area of the country, uh, even though it's in Connecticut, it's very, uh, it's very Trump country as signs everywhere. And that's what my neighbors, that's their politics. So Uh, I'm actually, even though I work at Yale, I know people think that means, you know, ivory tower and you're a liberal. Now, I keep my politics out of this because I I really have always been careful not to have my own motivations and desires influence my science as much as I possibly can. And I know that's not totally possible all the time. But here's the story about the liberals and and conservatives or Republicans and Democrats. Uh, Remember when Franklin Roosevelt said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. And a lot of people think, well, you know, that was World War II. It was the Nazis and, uh, the, and the the Western uh, and the Pacific War. And boy, it was scary. And we, we were afraid. Uh, it was something to be really afraid of. No, he didn't say it in World War II. He said it at the beginning of his term in 1933, and he was talking about the Great Depression. He was talking about the economic crisis, and he wanted to tell people not to be afraid of change, not to be afraid of these New Deal policies he wanted to put through that he thought would bring the country out of out of the Depression. So what he was trying to say was, we have nothing to fear, fear but fear itself, fear of, of social change, fear of, of changing society in certain ways that would help people. And, and that's the key. He was a liberal. He didn't want people to be afraid. Fear makes people more conservative. Threats and fear make people more conservative. People who are more conservative in their politics have larger fear centers of the brain. They actually have larger amygdalas. Mm-hmm. And children at age four who are uh, more scared by loud sounds and things at age four, 20 years later are found to have more conservative attitudes as adults. So now does this... You could take that and say, oh, conservatives or Republicans are scaredy-cats, or little timid. No, that's not right, because this is a very adaptive, evolved motivation we have to be safe and to protect uh, our loved ones and to uh, you know, worry about uh, uh, threats. And, and this is a very adaptive thing. It's not a bad thing at all. But conservatives tend to have more of that. Liberals, on the other hand, want you to be, feel safe. Uh, Same thing with what um, Roosevelt said. Obama said it in his last State of the Union address. So we have this uh, tug of war going on in politics where liberals tend to want you to feel safer because that makes you more liberal. And conservatives want to make you more afraid. And there's a lot of studies in psychology threatening people and showing they became more conservative. But no one had ever done a study to make people feel safer to see if that made them more liberal. And that's the study we did. We had people imagine really richly, a genie appearing to them and giving them the superpower of total physical safeness, uh, safety. Nothing Like Superman, bullets would bounce off you, nothing bad could happen to you. And after they did that, conservatives now had social attitudes towards things like abortion, same-sex marriage, all those classic social issues, right? Their, their right. position on those issues became identical to the Democrats. So by making people feel safe, we temporarily made them more liberal, just as in the past, people had made people feel more conservative by making them afraid. So I was just showing the other side of the, uh, the uh, of the system, other side of the coin. Um, I'm not trying to make people anything. I'm just showing that it's interesting. Politicians use that against us for their own purposes all the time. And we should know about it and realize either way, they're trying to make us feel an emotion that makes us vote in line with with their party.
0: Amen, amen, amen. Uh, and I thought that research was very novel, by the way. Let's let's pursue that, though. In order to accomplish the safety, uh, I'd like you to explain to our audience, I guess that's what I'm going to say, how you made these people feel safe. I mean, everybody knows that, look, if I want to skew you from liberal to conservative, you know, I could just set a a jar of hand sanitizer on the desk where you're answering a, you know, a survey. And, and that hand sanitizer will suggest to you, watch out, germs, danger, mm-hmm. you know. And you mm-hmm. become more conservative in your attitudes. So, you know, get t- tell our audience how you made um, these conservative folks feel more safe.
2: You know, it's, it's something that since I've been always working on uh, unconscious influences, I, I have to say that I was struck here the first time in my own career in my lab uh, that uh, we, we showed the absolute incredible power of the conscious mind. And this was through the power of imagination. And there is a lot of new research on this, but it turns out that uh, when you really imagine something, it changes your brain, it changes your mind, and it changes you in such a way uh, that it can produce these dramatic differences. I mean, people who are conservative their whole life now suddenly are saying, yeah, these are okay, yeah, we could have the you know, LGBT, we could have this and that, and, and, and whoa, now, that's a pretty powerful effect. And it's not just telling people, oh, you're safe, it's not priming them in some weak way, it's using the power of their conscious mind, their imagination, which has this transformational quality to it. And it just, it's, it's like uh, being in a movie and being in, even though you're safe in your seat in the theater, you're scared or you're excited or you're flying through the air and you're feeling these things in a real sense. It's not a, a mild feeling at all. It's very emotional. It's very involving. Same thing when you close your eyes and really imagine something and really get into it. And that's That was the key to that study. By really imagining having the superpower, to feel you know to be absolutely safe if nothing could cut you if you fell nothing but bad would happen it, and, and we love superpowers right look at all the tv right. shows it's everyone's got a superpower a super ability they have an edge on their competition that that makes them a lot allows them to win all the movies and marvel and avengers and wow it just everything is a superpower and we really love our superpower and what i what i realized a while ago writing this book is that you know what Consciousness is our superpower, and no wonder we love it, and no, no wonder we, we, we really want to use it in mindfulness and these things, because it really is a power we have that no other animal, no other creature on the planet has. And this study showed me how powerful it is to transform somebody from their set-in-the-way lifetime political views, temporarily at least, you know, in this state. They, they went to become a different political party, I mean, temporarily, and that's that's pretty awesome.
0: It is. It is indeed. Every hypnotist, every hypnotherapist out there would uh, would testify to that. As with the data, we we have a break coming up, Professor. So we're speaking with Professor John Barge about his work and book. Before you know it, the unconscious reasons we do what we do. Go get the book. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at beforeyouknowitbook. One word, beforeyouknowitbook.com. Now we have a video for you on the science of priming and we'll be discussing that more when we come back. So if you're not in the chat room, now's the time to get over there and you can do that again by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash slash. forward slash chat. I'll get the word out. All right. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it, until I used InnerTalk. Vicky wrote, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Intertalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to intertalk.com.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor John Barge about his work and book, Before You Know It, The Unconscious Reasons We Do What We Do. You know, I I don't want this radio show to be a commercial, but I'm going to tell you once again, go get this book. All right. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at beforeyouknowitbook.com. All right, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Now, your chosen music professor is Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. So share with our audience, why is this one special to you, and how does it inform us about who you are?
2: You know, it's it's, it's one of the... Great things about coming on the show is you get to hear your your favorite songs in your headphones while you're on. This I just love that. It's, uh, t- i tell you, it, it, I go through the exercise of going through all you know all the songs that are now you can get on your you know your phone and you can go through libraries and every song ever made. If I had to pick one song that I only got one and all the rest were gone forever, I could only listen to the one song over and over. It would be that one. I know I love Led Zeppelin. I know I'm loyal to Led Zeppelin, but that is the song. It's I I I I would love to tell you how it just affects me so much. And this is a funny thing about this song, is that it showed me very early how powerful music was on me. It 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 showed me what a powerful hold and an effect that something outside of me had on my emotions and my feelings. And in this case, it's a good one, but, you know, it can be a not so good one. It can make you a little too angry or it can make you nostalgic and sad. Like if it was a song that was tied to a relationship that went bad or a a breakup or somebody you loved is no longer around. I mean, there's such a power music had on me that, uh, you know, it's funny. I was a disc jockey for 10 years in the 70s. And after that, I didn't listen to music again for 20 years. I just couldn't. It just had too much of a power over me, and I was afraid of it. I had this fear of music. You know, the Talking Heads uh, wrote an album about, and it it, it, this is what would give me shelter. Keith Richards' guitar in the opening is so subtle and so beautiful. It's such beautiful music, as well as being a rock song. And those guys were in their peak, and they're just you know I, I have so many reactions to that song. But to tell you exactly what it why it's a psychology it's more of a it just showed me how something outside of me could control me if you want to say it that way in this sense in this case it's benign and it's wonderful but it it does show you that there's not you're not just totally in control of how you feel all the time you're not inside of you isn't the only source of, of influence and uh, it scared me a little bit you know and it it right. Yeah, that's that, I, I'm I'm coming out this from left field. I realize that, but it, it just I'm I'm still on a high from hearing that few little you know minutes of that song right now, and, uh, uh, no, and music always. Oh, yeah, and music always got me. And that's why I went into radio and and you know spent you know nine hours a night uh, for ten years as a late night disc jockey on all these stations. I, it just it was my life, and I loved it. I loved that time, but I I had to break away from it. I had to get away from it.
0: I think if we're all honest, Professor, there's at least one piece of music that um, has an influence over us that is so powerful that regardless of what might be going on in our lives, if, if it just spontaneously comes up on the radio or yeah. in the background, um, it changes our mood. It changes our mental state. It, uh,
2: Absolutely.
0: I, in Absolutely. fact, I think it would be a good idea. Uh, for all of us to maybe, you know, when you, you do your planning, your exit planning, uh, you, your wills and things of that nature, create a list, a music list of maybe the 10 or 15 most powerful emotional songs, uh, songs that put you in an era that make you feel young and strong and happy or that motivate you in some way or change mood states. Put them together put them in, you know, some some sound file and have them there just in case you ever are a serious dementia patient and you want to jump <laughs> up out of that wheelchair and go dancing go. for a minute. There you go. That's a great yeah. idea. I like that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let's look at some of your experiments, sir, especially mm-hmm. those especially those that provide some insight into just how easily we can be manipulated and massaged just today. <laughs> I read an article, um, a new, new journal piece, uh, Pernell, Professor Purnell Anderson from Carlstad University, um, university in Finland, I'm sure you're aware of it, that uh-huh. talked about classical music and how, um, you know, the appearances, smells, sounds, all these uh, are important factors influencing the subconscious buying behavior. And, you know, <clears throat> Ever since, uh, you know, the, the change in our understanding of propaganda, Edward Bernays and scientific mm-hmm. marketing, and then, you know, what today is called neuromarketing, use of mm-hmm. fMRI and whatnot, mm-hmm. people get more and more sophisticated with how they move us around. So let's start, if we can, with... One of your classical experiments where you predispose the interpretations of first impressions. Tell us about that.
2: Uh, I, I, I'm assuming you're talking about the, the coffee study or yes. is this uh, the warm cold? OK, so, uh, you know, this is something that we just noticed um, in the language that we uh, when we talk about people, we often talk about them in in uh, in physical terms that really are irrational. It, it really we talk about a warm person or a cold person. Well, they're not. Right. You know, everyone's pretty much ninety eight point six degrees Fahrenheit. It's not like someone's actually warm and someone's actually cold. But we we know what that means somehow. We talk about a a, a distant father. Well, the, they may be in living in our house with us. Why are they distant? But we know what that means. And so when we use these physical terms about warmth, uh, coldness, or distance, or up and down high, like high status, low status. You know, we use these, uh, we all seem to understand what they mean, and we got very interested in what that means about the mind. And we looked uh, looked at writings of people who studied the language development in young children, for example. And they talked about how the young infant, newly born, the only thing they really can do is make concepts out of the physical parts of their world. Because they don't yet have the ability to recall the past or put two things together in their mind. That's a a skill that comes later, three or four years of age. So there's years of infancy when your real only experience uh, that you can make sense out of is just the physical Uh, warmth and cold and high and low and bright and dark and all these things. Well, those are then the first concepts that all of us form when we're newly born. And they tend to be the basis for all the other concepts we eventually form built on those, like a scaffolding kind of thing. So that's why we so easily take these terms and apply them to understanding to describe people, or psychological states even. And, And everyone around the world knows what it means to be a warm person or a cold person. And we're really intrigued by that. Like, well, could it actually be that there's some connection between our experience of warmth and our feelings that somebody's a warm person? Same thing with cold. And there was a a wonderful attachment theorist who talked about how children get attached to their mothers and fathers when they're, you know, a year old or so. And he actually said that physical warmth helps the child bond to the mother, especially, you know, during breastfeeding because there's – the, here's someone taking care of me, feeding me, holding me close, keeping me safe. At the same time, I'm experiencing the warmth of her body, the physical warmth of the contact with the skin. And he said that in all mammals who have breastfeeding, at least, you should have this connection that's formed early in infancy. And mm-hmm. and it connects warmth of the physical type to warmth of the social type, which is having to do with, you have my best interests at heart, I can trust you, you're generous to me, like a parent to a child. So we said, well, you know what, maybe we use these words because there really is a connection. And so we wanted to see if we could induce these feelings of of warmth towards somebody else, of trust and generosity and pro-social kinds of feelings with actual physical warmth. And we did. We had people just briefly hold a a hot cup of coffee or a a cold cup of iced coffee just, you know, to hold this. And let me get your papers. I'll take it back. Thank you very much. That kind of thing before they even went into the experiment. And when we did that, we replicated this, this study from 70 years ago, a famous study that used the words warm and cold to change impressions of people. We took those words out. So everybody in our study got the same description. Everyone got the same description. Yet if they had held a warm cup of coffee beforehand, they liked the person more, they trust, They thought that person was more trustworthy and generous than if they had held the iced coffee. So we had substituted the words warm and cold or the description or that social kind of warm and cold for the physical. And whoa, now... This connects the body to the mind. This means that our body experiences, physical experiences, can have psychological consequences, can have interpersonal consequences, and cause us to like or dislike or trust or not. And since then, I want to say, we did this little study. Neuroscience has shown, imaging studies have shown that this part of of the human mind, the brain, that, that becomes active on holding something physically warm, is connected directly and is right next to the one that becomes active when you're texting on your phone to your family and friends. It's actually wired together, hardwired in human beings around the world.
0: Now, you explained the underlying nature of that, and sometimes, you know, the research is clear enough that you you, you can see the connection. Okay, so the warmth of the nurturing uh, and it transfers to the warmth of a cup of coffee, easy to get. But there's research out there that maybe not quite so easy to get. A waitress mm-hmm. in red always gets a bigger tip. Why uh, does this prime, <laughs> you know, in this context work?
2: Uh, you know, I, I, this is the this is the problem here because, uh, you know, I, I, you, you could tell from my description that I was talking about a phenomenon going back 70 years and uh, the idea of warm and cold, and it's universal, it's around the world, there's enormous amounts of data, now neuroscience data on that one. There is not the amount of of evidence and data supporting every single one of these kinds of studies that say, you know, uh, a blue room makes you feel this way, a red dress makes you feel that way. Uh, right. so to, this is the, this is the expertise and, and to, uh, and what, uh, you both in Rombard and Robin both said to think about these things a little more, if you lump them all together, you get a lot of maybe not so, uh, replicable kinds of studies lumped in with the ones that really are, uh, part of human nature. And so we have to be a little more, dis- we have to be discerning people out there have to be a little more discerning and not just look at every single study like this as if it's the same class as the warm and cold which has been you know, found by neuroscientists to actually be wired you know, together. All these other right. ones, not necessarily, not necessarily. Um, some of these are cultural metaphors that exist in some cultures and countries, but not others. And uh, things like bright, a bright smile. Um, you, when people see uh, a, bri- a, a brighter smile, they think the person is more intelligent because that's another meaning of the word bright. That happens in some cultures, but not others. Not every culture has this idea of bright connected to intelligence. So, yeah, um, I would say we have to be um, uh, careful about uh, every single one of these uh, claims about these kind of findings, but not to treat them all as if they're all true or all not true in in a sort of a mass sense. I'm not aware of the red one. Um, I do know about the waitresses who get more of a tip when you... When they imitate back the customer's order, and that's having to do with imitation and mimicry, and how that also creates a bond between people. Uh, that's been replicated in French department stores, and you know, big, big, uh, big samples where they actually sell more and have higher customer service ratings. Uh, very, very much so. Uh, selling electronics, if they repeat back what the customer says to them in a nice way, as opposed to not doing so. So there are these kinds of effects. Um, but the, you know, I, I don't know the red one myself. Um, it may be that she gets more attention because of the red. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, it, 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 it's not as vetted, not as instantiated in, uh, you know, the neuroscience and everything as, as, uh, at least the warm cold one is.
0: Okay. Let me ask you this, because the cultural aspect I think of primes is, is, is often overlooked. I mean, and you brought that out, you know, culturally in a different, um, environment, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things are just viewed differently. So, uh, is there a, you know, a universal prime other than the hot and cold that you're aware of?
2: A distance is one because the brain our brains actually encode, uh, treat uh, threats differently depending on how far away they are to us. There's different parts of the brain for something that's a looming threat At, at the closer it gets, that control switches to the panic centers of our mind right in the middle so distance is actually something um, that 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 has a and it's been shown uh, distance has a sort of swappable effects like physical distance uh, also uh, are maps onto emotional distance and uh, psychological distance and all these kinds of forms of distance sort of all interchange with each other. So uh, distance is one high and low is another one um, looking when people look up, they have uh, more, you know, they it, it, there's a lot of nice effects of high and low. Uh, and it seems to be, um, uh, related to status and, you know, the high status. And when you look at organizational charts, you always see the CEO, you know, on top and then control flows downward from that, from that top. You never see the CEO in the bottom with the lines going up in the chart, you know, upward, upward direction. Right. So, so there's some spatial ones like distance and up and down, uh, that are other ones. Um, there are many of them, but, uh, uh, you have to be careful to say they're universals of human nature because there are some that are specific to, you know, cultures. In the in in Japan and, and East Asia, for example, there's a, a greater concern with the face, uh, with uh, with reputation, and with saving face. And and in those cases, there's effects of uh, researchers at Toronto have shown this of washing the face. Uh, after uh, making a mistake that has wonderful effects on East Asians But not on people from other parts of the world and so there's something special about the face in the culture That means when you wash the face you sort of cleanse and, and erase that uh, Bad thing you did uh, that that hurt your reputation the mistake or the faux pas But that doesn't happen all over the world It happens in cultures that really talk, emphasize uh, the role of face in, in society
0: let me ask you this: Let's jump back to politics for a second. I mean, we know that these tools are used on the masses every day, as, as as we've already discussed, from everything from a you know political platform selling us that idea to a product. Do you think that we have uh, ambassadors, trade ambassadors, negotiators that actually deal with you know foreign countries? Um, who are skilled in these tools. I mean, uh, you would be the kind of guy you'd call upon to say, all right, <clears throat> what should I use to warm up this conversation, to win this, you know, it, it, to employ the best techniques? And, you know, uh, are you familiar with anyone or any training that goes on at that level?
2: Oh, absolutely. And there are coaches of executives who, uh... Uh, we just had a wonderful, very well respected one pass away uh, this past week. Uh, her name was Judith Glazer with a website called Creating We. Uh, and she mm-hmm. was an executive coach. And um, she, was, uh, she worked with CEOs and, and managers to, to absolutely establish feelings of trust, uh, interpersonal trust. Uh, and bonding uh, between themselves and, and their customers or themselves and other leaders. And, and the, the techniques are, are there and they make a lot of sense. There's also sort of tricks, you know, almost you could use. Uh, I, I talk about these kinds of things in, in my book. For example, when you meet someone for the first time, a very, very thing, the, the very best thing you can do is, is look at them. Is And that sounds silly, but I mean, really look at them and just pay attention to them. Because often when we're interacting and meeting somebody, we're so nervous or we're thinking about what we want to say next. And that's what I do. And I'm thinking in my head with some witty thing to say, some clever thing to say. Well, that's taking my attention away from them. It's directing my attention inwardly. And I often forget their name. Right. I never catch their name because I'm so focused on my clever, witty thing I'm trying to come up with. So just by looking at the other person. What you naturally do because you're looking at them perceiving their their face, their tone of voice, their movements is that you imitate them. You mimic them without realizing it. And that turns out to be they sense that and that turns out to be a a good cue, very primitive, basic cue. They think, hey, you understand me. You're reacting to th- things the way I do. You're you're acting the way I do. You're talking the same way I do. So, same kind of tone of voice and the same kind of nonverbal gestures and facial expressions. And actually, people like each other more when they sense the other person is subtly imitating or mimicking them. No one's aware of this mechanism, but like greater liking and smoothness of interaction. That's why these uh, waitresses and these store clerks make more money if they do it back to their customers. Not in a over overly way, you know. Not too. Heavy. Heavy-handed, but in a subtle way, we sort of sense that hey, you know, you you understand me, you get me, because you're doing the same and saying the same things I am and looking the same way. All it takes is looking at them, and all this natural mechanism will take over. So there's things that we can do like that. I'm sure the successful people uh, in the world, leaders and so forth, know these things. If if not. It's not where they can explain them, at least intuitively they know them and they do these because it really helps uh, create a bond between people in a sense that you can trust this person.
0: All right. Here we are again. I have asked you nine of 18 questions I <laughs> planned for this show and we're out of time. I, You know, I, maybe you'll have to come back a third time. But before we leave, Professor, in about 30 seconds, tell everybody how they can get your book and learn more about your work.
2: My, my book's on Amazon, Before You Know It. Uh, it's uh, available now on paperback. Uh, it's uh, on um, our, our Facebook page, is Before You Know It. It's uh, where I put, for example, uh, podcasts and interviews uh, such as this one uh, every time I do one, uh, and it's... Uh, we have that uh, website, beforeyouknowitbook.com as well. So there's places to connect. And uh, I, I hope people – I everyone wants, uh, when you write a book, people to buy your book and everything. But what I experienced this past year since it came out, when people actually read it, they like it. And they, 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 they when they read it, they enjoy it. And I just – so I hope that people will, will give me right. a chance. All right,
0: computer's <laughs> going to kick us out, <laughs> Professor. I love your work, and I'm glad you were here today. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Until next week.